Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life. Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. Okay, we're recording. Welcome to the very first episode of the We Were Young podcast, working title. <laughs> I'm Dave Merlino. With me, as always, no matter how much I try to shake them, is Dustin Sweet. Um, I try. And uh, before we begin, I guess I should do the unveiling of whatever hat I'm going to wear today to uh, cut down on the glare and I can go with the old standby American flag trucker cap. I never thought I'd like a trucker cap, but I had to get <laughs> I had to get it for the um, the school auction when we did the uh, denim denim and diamonds. That was the first year we did the uh, the fund and need video for them. I actually have a picture of it. <laughs> oh okay. Oh you yeah. had those arm tattoos. I know that cost a lot of money to get those laser removed after, but it was worth it. <laughs> you like that, Doc? Oh yeah, I saw it. I saw it. Yeah, they're actually sleeves. I can bring it down when we visit you in Florida. We can. Uh, yeah. We can That's get right. a picture of you with the full tats. Dave, you still got your uh, uh, Dustin. You still got your tats, right? Yeah, I uh, I kept mine. You kept yours. <laughs> Yeah, um, his aren't his aren't fake. Um, so for today's podcast, we have a special guest who we've known for quite a few years now uh, through our documentary Apache Blues Welcome Home. He uh, joined the army at you were about what nineteen, Doc? Eighteen. Eighteen. Joined the army at eighteen. Uh, served one year in Vietnam as a combat medic for Apache Troop in the 1st of the 9th Cavalry, uh, 1970 to 71. You may know him if you've seen the CBS news footage uh, as Devaye, De as uh, Richard Threlkeld called him, but his name is actually Richard Del Valle. Um, for those of you who wondered if he made it out of Vietnam since that video, yes, he did. Welcome, welcome to the future, Doc. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dave. So, and actually, it's been, yeah, it's been 50 years now since that video. 50 was years, made. yep. Yeah. What do you say it was that? How many views is it? Nine million or uh, 10 million? Well, we're, we're almost, I would say in another month, it'll be over 10 million. Yeah, it's at like 9,800,000 right now. Something like that, yeah. yeah. What's that like for, for you? I mean, we've talked to Craig, and Craig's the one who get you know got shot in it, so he's forever you know attached to that. But for you, I mean, you'll be forever nineteen in that video on combat. Does it still stir emotions for you to see it, or or uh, be yeah, you look you know? at yourself and you say, "Jesus, that's how I looked fifty years ago," and you can't believe fifty years have gone by, but. Uh, it, and to think, we never thought that we'd see so many views on uh, on on today uh, with this video. We thought it would be just lost in the files of CBS News. 
Um, Richard Threlkel, when we were leaving the, uh, um, to get picked up on the helicopters that afternoon, after we met Evac Craig, uh, he says, uh, you think your mother and father would be uh, impressed when they see you on TV? And I says, yeah, right. They're going to show this like this is the only news. And sure enough, uh, that week on Good Friday, they showed it on the uh, CBS uh, Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And uh, it was unbelievable. My parents were so shocked and just went absolutely wild when they saw it. But, How? Uh, I mean, it's not like when they showed it, you had Skype or the internet to watch it in country. When was the first time you actually saw it? About a year later. Wow. After I got home. Uh, and back then, uh, my mother had written to CBS News and they sent her a 16 millimeter uh, film of it. So back then, the only way you could watch it is on a 16 mil millimeter projector. And how, it's not like today where you can record it and two seconds later you can have half the world see it. Actually, that's funny. I've been going through my dad's estate and look what I found. Oh, hey. Oh, yeah. Awesome. A little uh, projector here. Yep, yep. Well, that's a, a, a that could be an eight millimeter, right? Or is it? Yeah, I think it's a super eight. Yeah, I mean back then, Super Eight movie theaters, and a lot of them didn't even have sound. So yeah. if you've got any Super Eights when we visit you in Florida, we can watch it. Oh yeah, well I, I have a lot of old films, um, you know, from family which we're going to convert to DVD. Yeah. But. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I never, my wildest dreams would ever think that this would, uh, you know, so many people would be uh, watching it and interested in it. And uh, uh, it, it was something, you know. Is there a, a specific quote that people keep bringing up to you? Yeah, that give me cover. <laughs> And uh, 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 the reason why I said that is I just happened to run up and I just happened to stop where the cameraman and Richard Threlkel, matter of fact, I stepped on Richard Threlkel because he was in the way when, of the trail. And, you know, you're not watching everything. So I stepped on him and then I happened to look over and I saw the cameraman uh, filming with the recording guy. And I said to myself, this is, maybe I should say something. And that's, I couldn't think of anything that's else except that. Said? Oh, that's so good. So uh, I just, uh, from there, I just said it. And Jack Hughley was in the background saying, come on, come on, come on. And I almost like said, I don't see anybody else running. The cameraman so, didn't follow you up there, I noticed. What's that? The cameraman didn't follow you up to Korea. Nobody, nobody did, nobody. Uh, and it just happened to just play right when uh, Dwayne Bloor was on the 60 machine gun where he just, they caught him firing at the same time. Like it was uh, almost like a, a choreograph of the whole thing, you know? We rehearsed this whole thing before. Yeah, well, that does actually like every day for a couple months about that point, right? What's that? I said you and Dwayne had re rehearsed that for a couple months at that Oh, point. yeah, yeah, yeah. We did that many times, yeah. 
But well, uh, that does bring a question because on that, on the YouTube video, I'd say at least once a week or once every couple of weeks, someone comments that it's fake because how did the cameras know to be filming Dwayne and how did they know this? And it was all fake, which is more of an indictment of today's media probably that right, people forgot, right, right. you know, but for you who was in that video, what is, what, how does that make you feel to, to have people think it's a fake video? Uh, it's just like the moon landing. That was fake. You know, I mean, you're going to have, you, you have critics all over the place, you know, you know what they say about opinions. Everybody's got one. So and, and they're you, all you take the good with the bad, you know, or the bad with the good, you know, yeah. um, but I'd say 90, 98% of the people are, um, uh, um, well, we got almost 10 million hits. So, uh, it's gotta be <laughs> something. something you know? Craig says he doesn't get a purple heart every time someone watches him get shot though. Yeah. <laughs> well, right now he'd have 10 million purple hearts. So he'd uh, outdo Audie Murphy. <laughs> So actually going back, so you joined the army at 18. Yep. How did you come about to join it? Was it your choice or uh, you, uh, did you volunteer or were you volunteering? I volunteered, but uh, let me see. When I was just ready to go to medical training, the uh, army, the U.S. Army sent a notice to my house saying you've been invited to join us. And my mother called the... Uh, selective service and said uh, he's in the army right now matter of fact he's in texas at fort sam houston so their reply is he better be here monday morning or we'll send the mp M uh, military police after him so my mother called me and says you know they want to arrest you i says well they know where to find me so that but nothing ever happened so they would have sent the military police to the army base to arrest you for not joining the army. Correct. But yeah, that, that was like my typical government. That sounds uh, like my government career. Uh, but uh, I went from uh, Fort Dix to uh, Fort Sam Houston for medical training. And I figured why I joined the army, it looked like uh, they were grabbing everybody. So I figured, let me uh, get my training in the summer instead of the winter. I could just see myself there in some cold base uh, doing winter training. So uh, from there, um, we wait, had wait, about- what was, the, what was the medical training like? What was, was it just like basic EMT and, and hard wound stuff or what? what was uh, uh, yeah, they touched on just about uh, everything. Um, don't forget, they crammed 10 weeks of training and they said, don't worry about it. The rest you'll learn on the field. So that's how it is, just like, a, like the infantry. You know, the rest you'll learn, uh, OJT. They used to call it OJT. Hopefully not learning it by like, oh, I shouldn't do that one again. <laughs> it, it was an experience, but you know what? Uh, out of, uh, I think there was 850 medics in our class, 750 went to Vietnam. So it's not like out of 800, there were only like 10 and you were one of the 10. So I mean, everybody went. So when you became a medic, you knew you were going anyway.
uh, and they, uh, they gave us 30 day leaves, went home, and at least I had Christmas uh, at home that year. And then the next month I was in Vietnam in January of 1970. And um, as, I, uh, as I was getting orders, you know, they said, okay, you're going to the first air cab. So I said, what's that like? Oh, don't worry. It's a, they see a lot of combat. Great. Uh, but you might go to a hospital or something. You don't know. So I said, okay, so the next set of orders, you're going to the first and ninth. What's the first and ninth? Oh, you'll love them. That's a reconnaissance unit. They fly helicopters. You fly in the battle and you fly out. Great. So I get up to the first and ninth squadron to the aid station. They said, uh, me and another fellow who's a very good friend of mine, Dominic Cavalier, we both got in the same day and we both left Vietnam the same day. Uh, the uh, flight surgeon said, well, who wants Al uh, Apache troop and who wants Bravo troop? So I says, I'll take Apache troop. You'll love it up there. It's a nice base, great bunch of guys. You'll have a lot of fun. My first 10, 15 minutes in Apache Troop, uh, I had my first two casualties. Um, uh, two uh, scouts were getting into their loach and a 122 rocket landed right in front of them. Wow. So I was immediately uh, uh, doing uh, my combat medic training. Had you even checked into your hooch yet, or you just gotten there? Uh, I just dropped my gear, and all of a sudden there was an explosion behind where we uh, we had these hooches where we uh, kept our gear and we slept because uh, we were kind of lucky. We, we came in at night. Most 99% of the time we would come in at night. We would just do our day missions, uh, whether it's from down helicopters or reconnaissance work or something. But we always we always we were lucky. And we and with that, you know, you had at least you could take a shower at night. You can change your clothes. You had one hot square meal during the day. And you lived halfway decent. Uh, not like some of the grunt units where you stayed out two, three weeks. You lived in the weather all the, 24 hours out of the, uh, out of the day. Um, you got rained on. It was hot. You were sweated. You went to bed sweated and uh, uncomfortable. Uh, you only ate sea rations. Once in a while, they used to get hot meals flowing out. But uh, we considered ourselves very lucky. Well, that kind of leads into your, your comment about the rocket attack, kind of leads into my next question. Um, so that was kind of technically your first taste of quote unquote combat. But combat, for you, yep. as a 19 year old, what was it like? I mean, or what's your recollection about the first time you're in the field and bullets start flying? Like, did you, did that change you as a person or, you know, was that just kind of the, this is real life now? What was that like the first time you were in combat? Uh, the first time I was in combat and the shooting started, I said, boy, they're not kidding around here. They really mean serious business. And it's not until you see actually somebody getting wounded 
whether our side or seeing a dead or wounded NVA soldier, uh, that's when it really gets real. And uh, when you start seeing the dirt get kicked up in front of you, then you know they mean serious business and you better get tough yourself. Uh, I guess there's an old World War II saying, kill or be killed. And unfortunately, uh, that's what you have to do. And um, uh, you gotta be there to, to understand what goes on. By me telling you, it's, it's still like, okay, I've seen it on all these movies. I saw it on Saving Private Ryan. Uh, but it, when you're actually in combat, uh, you get a whole different perspective of life. Uh, and sometimes people take it for granted, you know? But... Uh, I mean, talking about movies, um, we've talked around the walls before about we were soldiers and he said some of the critics have um, kind of dinged him for that, for a soldier saying, uh, as he was dying, tell my wife I love her. And they're saying, you know, that's all just machismo. And so, I mean. Oh, guys, guys will cry for their mothers and they will cry for their loved ones. Uh, there's no fooling around with that. That's, that's real, that's real. Uh, especially when you're looking in their eyes, you know, they, people know when they're going to die. And as, I mean, we've talked to other soldiers who have, you know, obviously it's, it's a tough thing, you know, you've got to get back up and you've got to go back out the next day. You know, like with when Tim McCrite was killed and, and mm -hmm. Joe Sanchez and, and Gary Qualley were medevaced out. I know that was before your time, but, um, you know, you see your friends die, but you still got to go back. That's from a soldier. But for you as the man sitting next to them out in the field and hearing them cry for them. They're looking at you. They're looking at you because they got their life in your hands now. Uh, you know, even a minor wound, you know, guys, um, a platoon will go out without a, a, a lieutenant or the, the platoon sergeant, but they, they refuse to go out when there's no medic. Uh, guys put up a lot of fights without, they want a medic there. They, they, because if something happens, they want somebody to be there to give them the aid. And that's, that's, you know, they, they'd rather um, go out with a few less men than without the medic. And that, that I've, I've always managed to go out on every mission. Did that end up putting a lot of pressure on you? Uh, like, did you feel that pressure while you were um, Sometimes, but most of the time, you know, it, it was a job. It was a job. You had to do it, you know. Um, there was no, uh, well, I don't feel like going out today. You know, it's, this is, when you're in combat, you're not, you're not doing normal things. It's not a job. It's, you know, it's, it's life and death. There's no fooling around. You make a mistake, 
you're dead. You make a mistake, you may kill others. That's why it's important that, you know, people around you are aware of what's going on. Everybody's got to be sharp. You know, there's no, uh, uh, well, uh, I'm thinking about what's going to happen and when I go home. You can't do these things. Somebody's life is on the line. Somebody will get killed. As a medic, I, uh, this might not be a question that you can quantify, but as the medic, were you more concerned? Obviously, you have concern for your life, but are you more concerned for your life or for keeping, you know, you've got the whole troops' lives in your hand to, to an extent? Like, what would you think about in terms of that? Uh, both, but, you know, here again, you know, uh, the guy walking point, you know, he can get killed in an instant. Uh, with me, if I had to run up or do something, well, it's my turn now to, you know, do my job. And it's not heroism or it's just doing your job. You know, guys, guys are, are counting on you. You know, uh, you fail, you failed somebody's life. And, uh, uh, um, and that's the way it is. You, 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 it's your turn to, to at the at the uh, uh, to hit that home run. You know, uh, the team is looking at you. Yeah, and you did carry a rifle as a medic, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, it's not like World War II where we had the Geneva Convention. You know, uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, if I got separated or if we, you know, if nobody got wounded. The first thing you become is an infantryman. You have to, right. you know, you got to play many, you got to wear many hats. You know, uh, somebody gets wounded. Okay, I, I, uh, I become the medic now. Nobody's wounded and we're uh, ambushed. Well, it, it, you're an infantryman now. Uh, just like on down birds. Um, you know, whatever, whatever it takes to do something, you know, uh, you got to do it and you got to wear many hats. And a lot of other guys wore many hats too. You know, um, uh, if I can't get to them, some guys would, you know, help somebody that was wounded and, and uh, you know, until I got to them. But uh, everybody worked as a team, a very close, well-machined, uh, oiled machine you'd have to work as. Yeah, I mean that, I remember one of the first times I talked to Craig, uh, one of our first interviews, he said that as a soldier, it's really easy to teach soldiers how to kill the enemy, but when you've got a wounded comrade next to you, uh, they didn't teach you how to save their life as a soldier. Right, uh, right. And that was the worst feeling in the world to him. Um, so he, he admires you for your ability to be able to do that. Well, like I said, you know, uh, the whole, the whole platoon is looking at you, you know, when somebody's wounded, you know, uh, sometimes you're like a God, you know, uh, you don't want to see anybody die, but you know, you do your best to, to pull them through. And, and you have the morphine. 
Yeah, I had the morphine. I made him feel good. Dustin, you, you look like you were going to talk. Nope, no. Uh, he's not the best. He's going to make morphine jokes, but then I didn't have any, so sorry. He's not the best co-director in the business for nothing. <laughs> kind of a downer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's, you know, like we, we talked about before we started recording, this isn't so much about your time in Vietnam, because a lot of podcasts can do the tell me about this right. day, tell me about this day. Really, this is about, as a veteran, what it's like to come home um, in, in that transition. And Vietnam vets, for various reasons, some good, some bad, have a lot of experience to be able to pass on to newer, to generations of veterans about making that you know, in terms of coming home, would you say you were the same person as you left, a different person? Like, what was the Doctor Valley coming home compared to the one who left? Completely different. Completely different. Uh, I think you s just about see everything in life when you've been in combat and... Uh, I was overseas, I was in the service, I was in combat, um, you know, uh, uh, I've, when I was in the aid station, I was the senior medic, and uh, you make decisions like, okay, somebody has, has to go to the field today, you know, and, you know, uh, you don't want to send somebody out, but sometimes you have to send somebody out and hopefully they don't get uh, wounded or killed that day. You know, it's not like uh, on a job where you're saying, um, uh, okay, you, you do this job, you know, there, if you say, Hey, you got to go out with, uh, a, um, uh, with another blue platoon. Uh, you know, if you get killed, well, you know, it's too bad, you know. You didn't want to see him, but that, that, that's the way it goes. But uh, coming home, uh, I was very uh, lucky. Uh, me and my friend, we left Oakland. We flew back. He lived in uh, Batavia, New York. I lived in Teaneck, New Jersey. And uh, we made it back with no incidents at the airport, nobody spit at us, nobody threw garbage at us, and we were lucky. I mean, uh, some, of our, some of my buddies got spit at, uh, cursed at, and uh, I, I, like I said, I was lucky. And How did it change your relationships when you got back? Did you, did you hang out for a while? Did you go back to work right away? What did you? Uh, to be truthful, I went back at the end of the week when I got home. Wow. I was already working. I figured, well, back to civilian life, you know, got to make money. Orders? What, what were you doing for work? Uh, I was in the uh, flower business, in the wholesale florist business. And I worked for a Jersey wholesaler. And um, uh, basically, I, I, from there on, I worked. I went to... Uh, night school at Fairleigh Dickinson University for about a year and uh, just, you know, carried on like normal, like before I went in the service. 
was that an awkward transition to be one week in Vietnam and five days later you're working or did that help you yeah, uh, to get right into it? I got into the work because I loved the job I was doing. And, um, uh, now I'm trying to think back 50 years ago, what happened, but, uh, yeah. Uh, 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 one thing I, I did find out, you didn't talk about being in Vietnam because nobody wanted to hear about it. Nobody cared. Uh, and if you did talk about it, they looked at you like, like, uh, you just got out of prison and people like turn their back on you. Did you, did and, you run into other vets? Excuse me? Did you run into other vets? Were there? Uh, yeah, a few, a few. And again, they did the same thing. They really didn't talk about it too much. You know, it's not until I would say the last five, 10 years that we've been able to, you know, speak more freely about what happened, you know. Um, what I find out is more people uh, said they were in Vietnam and you find out that, uh, you know, just to, just to hear themselves talk, it's like, uh, well, that's the coolest thing to say I was in Vietnam too, you know. Um, but uh, um, a, a lot of people, uh, guys like me and, and millions of others didn't say much about the war or talk about it. Uh, I think there was just too much bad publicity. People were tired of it. Uh, they... Um, um, they just didn't want to hear it. And, and to clear up, because the, the soldiers and the veterans actually, you know, in many cases, not every, like you said, you didn't have the protesters there, but there were a lot of protesters greeting the soldiers home and, and, you know, the transference onto the soldiers, like it was their fault that they were there. Just to clear something up, did you, Doc Del Valley, declare war on Vietnam for the United States? No, <laughs> I was the uh, one in one in the millions that had to go there and do a job. That was you it. Weren't, you weren't in on any of the discussions? No, no, I wasn't in when uh, President Johnson or Nixon made decisions. They didn't, uh, said, they didn't invite you to Paris? You weren't... Uh, <laughs> what's that? You, they didn't invite you to Paris? You didn't get to go? No, to I didn't go to the peace about? talks. I didn't talk with... Uh, 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 Schlesinger and uh, uh, short straw. <laughs> I was just one of the one of the the, the, the average person going there, just uh -huh. doing the job. And to be truthful, for uh, a war that nobody wanted, uh, everybody performed. You know, like like. Uh, uh, North Vietnam had just invaded the United States and we're getting back at them. Wow. Uh, everybody did their job over there. That's the way to come home. <laughs> yep. Did, uh... And it, it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, people that weren't in the service, uh, they should really it should be still mandatory to go into the service. 
I think there would be a lot less problems today. Disciplinary uh, problems. They, they do instill that in you pretty quick. Absolutely. Um, you know, you came home, it's not like today where you guys leave as a unit and come back as a unit. You had the staggered return, so there was always a cycle of experienced people in the unit in right. Vietnam. But that means you came home alone. You know, right. not only were you back to work, like you're immediately, like there's no one, there was no one to talk to, as you've said, nope. but not even any of your other veterans. There was no Facebook or internet. The VA was hardly, there was non-existent with the VA. It was just an idea, right? It hadn't rolled out yet? On, uh, I'm sorry? The, the VA, it was just, it hadn't really rolled out yet, right? Oh, the VA was always around for World War II, everything. They just basically, you know, if you weren't seriously wounded and they didn't treat you, it's, it's completely different today. I mean, you've got uh, where you have uh, PTSD classes. They can, the guys coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan and all that, they have uh, all the medical treatment and, and completely different. Back then, the VA says, not our problem, pal. You look fine to me. Yeah. As long as you were in one piece, you were okay. And if you got a mental problem, go see a psychiatrist. Don't well, bother they, us. They didn't really start understanding what is now, you know, commonly PTSD, becoming more accepted to call it PTS because it's not a right. disorder. It's just you've had a different experience than Dustin and I right. have. Right. Um, but they didn't start learning that until, you know, what was it? It was shell shock and right. battle fatigue. Like they didn't know. I mean, you guys were the, the, not only the testing ground for the helicopter war, but the testing ground for how you treat PTS right. and, and right. stress from coming home. Plus, plus we didn't get support really from the United States during the war. Uh, like I said, people, people didn't want to, they didn't want to know it. Not our problem. Well, didn't you find in one of the North Vietnamese caches some donations from Berkeley? We found a uh, case of um, blood plasma, and on the case it said uh, donated to the people of North Vietnam from the people of Berkeley, California. And, uh, you know, I can understand if they were sending blood to hospitals in North Vietnam to help civilians, but this is for the enemy soldiers that we were fighting. And um, uh, <clears throat> uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of things that we saw that people wouldn't believe today. They wouldn't believe. Was that like a gut check for you to see that? It made us sick. It made us sick. I think a few guys said, and this is what we're fighting for? Uh, uh, did you think back to that when when you had been home in the states for a while? Did you think back to that? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a lot fresher in your mind then, right? And today, and you know, you just say oh, whatever, you know. But uh, uh, back then, you, you you and when you saw a lot of the the rioting going on and uh, the demonstrations. And um, there was, um, when we did the, the first day of the Cambodian invasion, 
we heard in, it was actually a, a, an article in Stars and Stripes that uh, two guys were sitting at a bus stop in uniform and a bunch of college kids went over and almost literally killed them. They beat them, they hit them with bottles, rocks, everything, just because they were wearing uniforms. So there was a, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of things that went wrong, and uh, thank God we don't see it today with uh, with the kids in uh, uh, in Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, you know, you come home at least you get greeted, and people say thank you for your service. Back then, they tell you you should have been killed over there. You do, you would have done us a favor. Like literally, Craig got those letters after he was yeah, shot. Yeah, he got them when when we. Uh, I didn't read any of them, but he was telling us about them that he got, and he says, and, and back then, you know, it's not like he made this up. It was like he was in shock, in absolute shock, and like we said, well, what are we here fighting for? Yeah, for for those who don't know, after Craig Jorgensen was shot. In the in front of the CBS cameras, he got as he calls it fan mail from the state saying, "I saw you get shot. I hope you lose your legs. The war's wrong. You're wrong. Stuff like that." One person even wrote, "I says he said, I hope you die." You know, to a twenty-year-old kid. Yeah. Oh well, yeah, and he's just he's, doing he's, his job. Yeah. That the, the if you want to get mad, uh, yell at the president, yell at the senators, yell at the Congress. You know, they're the guys that made the decisions. Looking back at looking back at your life as a civilian doc, did how much did your experiences in Vietnam shape your own personal like political beliefs and how you how you lived your life? Like like the decisions um, you make about where to live and what to do. I think uh, you're a little more aware of what's going on today. And you, sometimes you read into things, you get a little too crazy at reading into things. But uh, um, sometimes you can't trust the government and what they're saying in the future. Like, uh, I think another one was uh, when we invaded Iraq in 2002, or, and he was, uh, our, our uh, government said that he had uh, mass weapons of destruction. We never found them. So I, uh, some of the examples of, uh, you know, you can't, you can't trust what the government says at times. Um, but, uh, uh, um, but but looking at that in terms of coming home, like we said, you came home alone, immediately mm -hmm. back to work. No one wants to talk to you. You have no idea what's going on with your friends. Still in country. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to lead you into an answer, so I'm trying to to ask this open ended. Um, was there any general feelings? Was it? Anger, despair. Like oh, there was anger. There was anger. Uh, but here again, uh, sometimes <clears throat> you would say, well, get over it because 
nobody's going to listen to you. And you're just going to, you're going to, you're going to be an angry, angry person. And you're not going to get anywhere. So, you know, you just kind of like put it out of your mind and, and uh, life goes on, you know, and, you know, you look at the, our fathers from World War II, you know, they came home. All right, granted, they got greeted. They were heroes. They were this, they were that. But they went on with life, you know. They didn't sit there and cry in their uh, in their uh, 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 coffee and say, "Oh, woe is me," you know. You move on, and I think uh, uh, ninety percent of the Vietnam veterans just moved on. Um, I would say ninety-five uh, percent uh, of the Vietnam veterans became productive in their lives, where they contributed to society and not become uh, a hindrance on society. Uh, um, uh, we have a lot of uh, uh, guys in our documentary. Uh, we're all uh, successful people. Um, uh, uh, we have bankers. We have people that own businesses. We have an author. Uh, we have uh, people that run companies. Um, Everybody produced. We didn't become a burden of uh, the government and saying, woe is me, uh, you guys did this to us. You know, we, we all produced and we all moved on with our lives. Um, and, you know, we first met you four years ago. Yeah. Ooh. About four, four or five years ago. Yeah. Four years ago in Las Vegas for our first interview. Right. Um, was that the first time you had sat down with a outside entity? You know, we're not your family and we're not, you know, right. anything, you know, we weren't in your unit with you to sit down and, and talk about your experiences. Was that kind of your first time doing that? Yes, that was the first time. So were, 40... were we gentle enough? Were we okay with you? Oh, you guys were perfect. You were gentlemen. Oh, gentlemen. That's been applied to us so often. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was that? I mean, we had only met 24 hours before we talked, 24 or 48 hours. Mm -hmm. We rolled into Vegas um, for your guys' mini reunion. You put a lot of trust in us, obviously, um, between the start of the interview and the end of the interview. Like, what was that like for you to actually finally talk? Uh, in the beginning, it was a, just a little tough at, at first like Jesus what are they going to ask me what am we going to talk about and all that but it, it, as we talked uh, it became easier and easier to talk to you and, and, and explain things and uh, I guess that that was the really the first time uh, outside of that I mean um, I have been in uh, what they have, the, the VA now has these PTSD classes, what we call, and we do discuss things in, in the class, and uh, in the class there's uh, uh, basically all Vietnam veterans. 90% uh, of us have been in combat. 90%, uh, I mean, all of us have the same problem, you know, uh, but uh, you guys did uh, very, very well, very good on that interview. And Perfect. I think you really uh, 
you did a lot more than what the VA can do. I'm a, I'm above you, Dustin. Uh, oh yeah, and yours? Are, are you up? Are you, that's all this guy. <laughs> You're pointing at Doc. <laughs> What's that? Oh, nothing. It's going to be reversed anyway. Just point in every direction. That's all these guys. Yeah. Um. So then we followed up with you a year later at your mm -hmm. home in Florida. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a year had passed, and the reason that we did that is because you know a lot of you guys, when we talked to you the first time, did you know when we turned off the camera, and unfortunately we couldn't get this in the documentary because the camera was literally had to be turned off for this phenomenon. But I remember, I distinctly remember seeing it with Dwayne, is as soon as the camera turned off, there was a bit of a... And, yeah. And, and, you know, like Ed said, you know, I, I, this was good, I wanna talk to my daughter. Um, it's easy to say that in the moment, but right. we wanted to see how that would go, you know, a year later, do you still feel that, that you know, talking was beneficial and that's why we, we followed up you know, now we're, we're several years removed from that first interview. Do you think that that sitting down and finally talking about your experience did have, I don't, I don't want to use the word impact or change, but you know. Uh, it, did, it did have an impact. It had an impact. Um, it did, um, it was like all this built up in you and finally, you know, somebody's listening to what's going on. Uh, um, and hopefully this documentary is going to help a lot of, um, veterans, whether past veterans or veterans of present, you know, help them, you know, get through, um, the guys today, um, I, I, I feel bad for them because they have to go two, three, four, five times into a combat zone. And that's a little bit much. That's a little bit much. And uh, uh, yeah, it's just a continuation. People don't of the realize curve, right? what's that. It's just a continuation of the curve, right? Like the World War II guys, they'd see two or three battles, and that'd be that. And then you guys had saw in Vietnam, you saw a bunch of battles over the course of a year, right? Right, and right. Because uh, here again, the helicopter could pick you up put you in, a, in another area and you could be in combat. Uh, we've been where, uh, we've been on reconnaissance missions. They picked us up, they put us in for a down bird. We took care of it, was a, if it was a minor crash, we would take care of it. And then they'd pick us up again and put us someplace else that day. Yeah. So like one day you can go into three different zones of uh, combat. And, it's all part of the of uh, that day's business, you know, where the World War II um, soldier, um, the only way you can get like a, an army is from them. Uh, I mean, we were mechanized and all that, but we didn't have the what we have today where you could pick up a battalion and land them in within minutes into a, a, a battle. But uh, uh, if you on that first mission of the morning you know you had the quote that sometimes you had to shoot your way in and shoot your way out to the down bird if you had that in the morning you know as a police officer 
you get, you know, I never was in a shooting, but you know, you're pulled off the line for a while. If you're in right. a gunfight that morning, would they say, okay, you guys need to calm down, or it's like, hey, keep going? Not March. Well, uh, we've been where we've, uh, you know, uh, it might have been a minor one, but we still, it, it, it wasn't like, okay, you guys had a good day today. We're going to give you a day off. Next day, uh, you could be in, they could have a down bird. There's no, there's no rest. It's like the fire department or the police department. Uh, just because you guys solved a bank robbery or broke up a bank robbery, you still have, uh, there's no rest. There's, uh, there could be a car accident. There could be another shooting. There could be a bad fire where people are trapped and you got to help the fire department or something. Uh, so there's no rest. There's no rest as, uh, in, in, in war. Uh, they say rest is uh, two ways. Either you're dead but when the war is over, then you can rest. Have you gotten much rest, though? I mean, for most people we talk to, the nighttime isn't uh, exactly your best friend. Um, sometimes it can be uh, a little hairy at night. You know, uh, at times uh, uh, you're talking, you're uh, moaning sometimes. Uh, my wife says a lot of times, uh, she asks me, are you all right? And all that. And I wake up and I say, what, why'd you wake me up? And she says, you're talking. There's something wrong. I said, no, nothing, nothing. And you just, sometimes you don't remember any of this stuff, the dreams and stuff. And, um, uh, you know, like I've, I've said before, when was the last time you were in Vietnam? Last night. And uh, even 50 yeah. years later, 50. I, 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 don't, I think even if I still have my uh, uh, my senses a hundred years later, you're still you're still going to think about it. Um, and I think that's actually good that you're willing to talk about that, because, you know, like we said, for we've talked to to the troops who've come home from uh afghanistan and iraq and you know they're still not yeah. every single one it's it's they're still learning how to transition right. back to the army is doing a lot more but I mean, absolutely no, but they're still learning how to return home and for you to say no like you know sleepless nights are a thing you're not you know there there's nothing wrong with you this is this is a thing like, yep. what would you say if, if you had a chance to sit down? Would you want to sit down with modern vets and talk? Like, you know, you guys are kind of the mentors. Well, we, we, uh, in this class, we had some uh, guys that came back from Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, um, problem is it's still fresh in their minds. You know, now you're talking to guys that... Um, you know, like we had one World War II veteran. I mean, he still talks like he was there yesterday, and that was, what, 75 years ago. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away. He was in his 90s. But uh, 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 like with us now, we're getting 50 years. Some guys, uh, because this war has been going on since 65, 64, 
you know, they got like 56, uh, 55, 56 years they've been uh, out of the war. Uh, it's still fresh in your mind, you know. Uh, you'll, you'll, um, you'll never forget those things. You'll forget what you had for breakfast, but you'll never forget what you did 50, 60 years ago. And that, go ahead, Dave. No, go ahead. Uh, do you think that it might be intimidating to a recently returned guy? The idea that it's just going to stick around? Or, or do you think that there's, um, do you think that there's ways to talk about it where uh, that's just how life is now and, and you can still have a good quality of life with? Um, yeah, there's, there's uh, ways and um, I, I think by talking about it and talking to other guys that have been in the same situation as you, uh, you can work out problems. Uh, sometimes you might, you, you wonder, hey, did this guy have it as bad or did you have it worse or did you have it better? Um, did you lose a lot of people in your unit? Did uh, everybody make it home okay? Uh, it, it's good to talk about it with other veterans. Talking to the public about it, um, it, it it's not like a movie where you can, right. it, it, and you, you can't relate to other people about it. Uh, as they say, uh, you can't relate unless you've been there. And uh, uh, we weren't there though, and you talked to us. What's that? We weren't there, and you were able. To I know, but you know, it seems like um, uh, you guys understand. You've been around us long enough now, and you've done a lot of research. Um, it's true. I mean, you guys haven't been there. You, you were. You weren't even born, right? No. Um, no offense, but no. <laughs> no, I, 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 you know, uh, um, I applaud you guys because you're, you've taken, uh, you've taken time to do this and and to you know take interest in and uh, uh, take interest in our lives, you know, uh, uh, and and trying to explain this you know, to the rest of the world, what's going on, what, what, uh, uh, what we went through. Um, and, and some, some people have gone through it and completely put it out of their heads and like, uh, Jesus, I think I was there, you know, and, uh, but I'd say uh, 90, 99% of us we still, we still remember what went on. Well, and when we talked to Dr. Clymer in Texas, he, mm -hmm. the former head of specialized care at Walter Reed um, and does a lot of PTS, he was actually a very um, central figure in, in how we've kind of figured out a lot of this. Um, he was talking about how when soldiers come home and stop me if you disagree with anything, that, I'm about to say but just from him you go to war so you you volunteered and you literally volunteered 
to go do this thing so other people wouldn't have to. Like you took it upon yourself to put that on your shoulders to protect others from having to do it. So the last thing you want to do is come home and tell everyone about the horror of it because then what have you, you know, psychologically thinking, what have I really saved them from? You know, so you, you don't want to talk about it, but you know, he was talking about, especially between say husbands and wives, like that is probably one of the most important things a soldier can do is to talk to their wife or to their husband, you know, you know, for you guys, it was, it was men at war, but now there's men and women being deployed, you know, to talk to your spouse yeah. um, about it, to have, you know, so there's not that big gulf in your marriage. Like it can drive a wedge mm -hmm. if a spouse or a child or a parent, anyone wanted to talk like for you as a veteran, what would be your advice for a family member to try and, or to a veteran to talk to their family? Um, what would be your advice for that? Well, if a family doesn't show any interest and say he's crazy, you know, the war really messed his mind up and you don't want to hear it. You know, it's like, again, people turning their back. If your own family turns your back on, on you, uh, you know, you say, Jesus, uh, uh, where's the relationship? Where's, um, uh, but if a family shows interest in, and, and a lot of families do now help and, uh, um, you know, they talk to their parents or talk to, uh, you know, spouses and all that. Um, my wife is very much interested in what's going on. Uh, and, and it helps. It helps. If a wife says or, or a, a husband says, I don't want to hear it. It's not my problem. You're the one that did it. You know, it's like, huh, what am I, what am I fighting for? You know, not even my own family cares. And, yeah. uh, so continuing on that line though, the spouse has come to the veteran and, and I learned a lot, you know, because I was the one interviewing Dustin was, was doing sound and Charles was running the mm -hmm. camera. It was weird for me because the camera was right here. And you were what, maybe three feet away from me. Right, right, sitting on the and couch there. So I had to um, to allow for the edit to time to be able to cut. I had to pause. I couldn't immediately talk, and that taught me actually a lot about listening because there was times when I say, "Okay, it's time to talk again," and then you guys would talk more, and right. and that's where a lot of the interesting stuff came out. And I th and that's, I thought I was a good listener. I think I'm a better listener now, mm -hmm. but I, looking back from my perspective, I think that it was that accidentally led to a way to make it comfortable for you guys. Cause I wasn't trying to solve any of your problems. Right. Like I wasn't trying to sit down. I just was there to listen to your story. Right. And so a spouse comes to a veteran and just wants to listen. Like this isn't a, you know, I don't have to solve anything. Right. The spouse wants to listen to the veteran. What would you right. tell the veteran? Um, listen to them and tell your story, but don't don't make it like it's uh, don't tell war stories. Tell what you what you uh, uh, what you feel inside you. You know, it's still kind of hard for a lot of us to talk about things too. You know. Um, uh, it, it's a little hard. Um, remember, for 50 years, you kept your mouth shut. 
now all of a sudden you become uh, a, a speaker, you know, and it's, it's tough, you know, it's, it's tough. And here again, we're getting older, we're getting um, like, well, I went this far, you know, why should I open my mouth, you know? Well, also it's a process, right? I mean, it's not right, like we're right. going to have this one talk and everything's great. It's, you know, talk about uh, I mean, what you're comfortable with. Uh, since we've started this documentary, there was, I, I don't know, maybe if I didn't do it, maybe I'd not say anything or not, uh, or, or if I didn't go to this PTSD class, uh, maybe I'd still be one of the ones still building up inside me, you know, um, or just like what war, you know, it's, it's a pass, you know, but uh, uh, yeah, this has helped a lot because we've been able to talk and especially with the guys that I served with, <clears throat> um, everybody can communicate. We've all been there. We were there 50 years ago. We, um, we all went through the same thing and now we can talk about it 50 years later. And it, it's a lot easier too. Um, uh, a lot of us are, are we're, we're actually calling each other up more like we're a close knit family. Um, sometimes I talk to, to the guys more than I even talk to my own brothers and sisters at times, you know, but. Uh, uh, I thought you were gonna say to your wife and I'm like, careful. Uh, yeah, careful. <laughs> yeah. What, Doc, what was I the impetus for you to, to take that PTS class? I'm sorry? What was the impetus to you to take that PTS um, class? They were saying, uh, I had talked to some of the psychiatrists at, um, at the VA, and they said, we have a, a class where a bunch of guys get together. Yeah. You're all combat veterans. Most of you are from Vietnam. This might be a little easier for for you to, um, you know, uh, talk to others about it, and I did, and it's it was pretty. I've been going to it for about, uh, I'd say almost five years. I've been going to it, nice. and for a while it was uh, every Friday. Then they changed it to every other week. So. Um, and now, unfortunately, it's shut down because of the uh, virus that's going on. But did you, uh, did you have a preference every week versus every other week? Uh, nope. I always looked forward to going to it. It was, um, you know, you got friendly with everybody. Everybody would talk like, you know, I went through the same thing you did. So uh, it was easier. It was easier to talk to the guys. And um, one of the things, uh, some of the guys said, hey, coming here is like I got all my friends because on the outside, I really don't have any friends, which is very true. You don't make friends with uh, a lot of people. Um, I mean, you try and be pleasant with people, but, you know, true friends, it's, it's that certain bond that you, uh, you have with this group. Yeah, and when you guys get together, is there still the rivalry of branches? Like, do you guys still make fun of the Air Force? 
Uh, yeah, sometimes like we have uh, fellows in the Air Force, the Marines, uh, the Army. Uh, basically, that's basically it. And the Navy. I forgot the Navy. Uh, Which says a lot right there. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we had one guy that was uh, that's in there that uh, was in the brown water. And uh, uh, he tells us some crazy stories. And uh, uh, here again, you know, it's, it's, and all these guys that are in this class are, uh, have contributed to the, uh, to society, to the United States. Um, they're managers, they're business owners, they're um, uh, salespeople, uh, but everybody contributed something, you know. Uh, uh, nobody is sitting there saying, uh, I have to be supported by the government. Yeah. Well, when Dave and I were starting to look into Vietnam vets, we found this report that uh, uh, was uh, how most Vietnam vets were part of the most well-educated army in the world at the time, and uh, how you moved on to become some of the most prosperous Americans uh, on, on return. Um, do you remember where, the, where we found that? Um, no, well, it was saying, like, when you compare Vietnam veterans against their contemporaries, right. um, they're actually more successful. Um, and, and a lot of that, like they're saying, is some of the PTS is coming back now after the Vietnam veteran generation is retiring because you guys, like you said, you know, Friday you're in Vietnam, next Friday you're at work in Teaneck, New Jersey just were able to get into work and, and get right to work. And a lot of people buried that, like work, 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 work. And now that mm -hmm. they're retiring, all they did was kind of push the bill off. Like um, it, it didn't go away. Now they're, they're facing a lot more, which is why I think your guys' message of it's never too late to talk about this um, can be helpful. Well, um... A lot, uh, we found out that um, when we came back, we went to work right away. And that helped, especially when you're working, you're keeping your mind busy. It's not like daydreaming. A lot of us now that are retiring, we have more time to think about things and stuff. Uh, but when you're working, and that's the best thing to do, if to get to work, do something. Don't sit there and think about it and dwell on it and, and think, oh, Jesus, I was, uh, gee, last week I was uh, in a big battle and all that. Uh, get back to work, get back to work, think of other things. And you'll, uh, best therapy, best therapy is working. And even uh, in retirement, you guys are- In retirement, you still gotta do something, uh, volunteer. Uh, you know, sometimes we go out and we walk, we pick up papers for the, for the neighborhood, the community. Craig does it. Craig cleans up the, all of Washington shores there. Um, do something. Don't sit at home and uh, say, well, I'm retired. You know, you got to do something. Uh, but, uh, all right. So. Overall, a little bit of wrap up. Talk or not talk, 
yay or nay? It's good or indifferent. Like, what would you tell veterans coming home? Talk this about been, it. This has been Talk a good experience. It. Talk about it. Try and get back into society. Uh, get on with your life. Get on with your family. Uh, today, the, the, the government does offer a lot of things. The VA does. Uh, take advantage of it, but don't abuse it. Uh, and uh, enjoy life. Hell, you went through the worst thing in your life. Now enjoy it that you made it. You know, your friend might have died for you. So uh, uh, enjoy life. Well, it's like uh, that remember the line in uh, Saving Private Ryan when Tom Hanks looks at Private Ryan and says, make this worth it, earn this. Yep. And uh, well, you, as you said, you earn the right to live. Yeah. But, you know, these guys died for you, so go out and live yep. your best life to, to yep. honor them. So, but then when he looks at his daughter and says, was I a good man? And you're like, well, that was his wife. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. He says, tell me if I was a good man, you know, and, uh, you know, he, he just went on with life and he enjoyed it and he had his family and everything. So. Did you not pay your electric bill, Dustin? No, I'm, I'm standing next to me. I got these big bay windows next to me. And uh, the sun sun moved on you. The, uh, yeah, it's like me right now. The sun is hitting on this side with us. Yeah, Cloud clouds just came over, so all of a sudden the, the webcam compensated, and all of a sudden it's like four f stops shorter. So there we go. All right. Well, that's what I have. Um, and like I said, this is just a general. You know, we just want to sit down and, and talk with people and, and talk about their experience of coming home and, and allow you to impart. Uh, like I said, we've talked about it before. Would you be willing to talk to, to younger veterans? And, and yeah, talk? why not? Cool. We do it in our PTSD class. You know, we try and talk to these guys. Well, when we're allowed by huh? the government to go <laughs> do that. But no, no. Um, I think if you get, um, you know, a, a couple of us to talk, um, uh, like Tony Cortez, he can relate to these guys. I mean, he was commanding a lot of these guys, uh, what, 10, 15 years ago? Yeah, yeah, he went career. Yeah, career command sergeant major. Yep, yep, and he's still working. He's still working. Yep. Jack's still working. Yeah, Jack's still you're, working. You're I'm kind of like uh, uh, working, but enjoying life too. Um, uh, who else? I bet, uh, Craig, I mean, he's got his uh, things he's doing. Uh, uh, Braun was uh, working for a while, then he finally, he says, that's it, I, I'm retired. I think he's retired twice. And since yeah, he did. he did, he did, he did, yeah. he did. He went back to work for a while, and then he's finally said, that's it. Uh, Kathy's retired. So I think the two of them are really enjoying life. Uh, so, so one last favor for me, the inner Italian in me. Can I get you in your in your New Jersey accent to say, uh, I was in the, the power business? 
I was in you the know, flower you, business. You know, you sound like a mobster when you say that, right? Do, do I? It sounds like, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was our business. It was family business. There you go. And never talk against the family. <laughs> Thank you. Perfect. Dustin, can you top that? Uh, Doc, thanks for being here, man. I really okay. appreciate your entire involvement in this project. It's, uh, you, you guys, I'll tell you, if it wasn't for you guys, we wouldn't be here. Uh, Are no, we you were here before us? Huh? Yeah, we well, we have, but... Are, are we going to have this round and round again where you guys thank us? We're like, it wouldn't mean anything if you didn't want to talk to us. So thank you. And then yeah, just, we've never solved it. Oh, that. yeah. We'll be saying sure. thank you around for the next hour and a half. Good. Good. But uh, was it a good uh, uh, interview? I think so. We'll let the audience decide. Okay. We'll You've been listening to the Know Their Story podcast. If you made it this far, we must be doing something right. Let us know by subscribing to our channel. And think about sitting down with the veterans in your life. Because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end.